Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. Hello, everyone. I'm Julie, and here we have episode 319 of Forgotten Classics, where we will finish our journey around the world in, yes, 72 days. Following intrepid woman reporter Nellie Bly. It's going to be good. But first... I actually have a podcast highlight this week. This is a relatively new podcast about French history. And before you say, oh, no, no, thank you. I don't need to hear umpteen episodes about the French Revolution. I don't need to hear all this very dry and boring stuff because believe me, I have heard podcasts, which I was excited about at the beginning and then did. I'm not kidding something like 20 episodes about the French Revolution, because you've really got to understand it that in depth. You know what? I bet a lot of people do, but I myself am too shallow. Do not care that much. This podcast is more for people like me. And mostly because the hostess, Diana, who is... um, as she describes herself as San Francisco 20-something with a deep Hermione Granger-like love of French history, and who's the only one under the age of 65 ever going on all the free historical walking tours of battleships and uh, things like that. The way she tells it, these history lessons, if you could call them that, are really interesting. For one thing, she makes a lot of connections, and this is all based on research, that you don't really think about. She starts off with the storming of the Bastille and kind of deconstructs it in a way where you go, oh, I see at the time why they understood and did things the way they did, but this bigger picture is fascinating. For instance, very possibly, the French Revolution began with volcanoes in Iceland years before, or at least a year before. See, I don't remember. It also then goes into the fact that storming the Bastille to let the prisoners out, the seven prisoners, the seven noble prisoners, who all had all their own things because it was a prison for noble people and that sort of thing. And it's told in a very entertaining way, not that kind of snarky way that can also be very entertaining, but just kind of um, lighthearted, enjoying the heck out of the story, and therefore we enjoy the heck out of the story too. There are not that many episodes because it is fairly new. I think it's pretty popular though because she just did a little bonus one for her 10,000th download. So that's pretty good. The episodes will cover things like, of course, as I said, Bastille Day. One of them is about we ate a zoo. And I've heard about this before, but I'm not going to uh, take you into that. Uh, the Olympics, A Tale of Two Cities, the which is about the Belle Epoque and architecture. And then the Bells of the Belle Epoque. So it's about women and the beauties in Paris. The way Diana describes the podcast on her website is she says, the land of desire is all about the good stuff in French history, the stories behind the objects you crave, the clothing you wear, the art you admire, the food you love, the wine you need. I'm not here to tell you about the significance of the Treaty of Westphalia. 
but I am here to tell you about how all the nasty bits from Game of Thrones are ripped from French history. Coming for you, Red Wedding. And about why someone decided that eating snails was the thing to do, even in a country which perfected deep-fried duck. Definitely give this a try. The episodes are not that long, and like I say, the tone is just very enjoyable, and even if you think you know a lot about something like Bastille Day, which my hand is up, I did, you learn something new. So give it a try. Now let's talk a little bit about Around the World in 72 Days. I got a listener commentary from our friend in Hawaii, Ken. And he said, I like to hear older books like this. It gives you a look into the thinking of people then, not what we think they were thinking. Nellie has a very Eurocentric view of the world. This was not uncommon in her time. At the time the book was written, the United States was working on the Chinese Exclusion Act, so her view of the Chinese would be very biased. She conveniently overlooks the fact that the Chinese invented the wheelbarrow, compass, had movable type for printing 500 years before the Europeans, and used fingerprints to identify people 800 years before the Europeans. Then, the language she uses in describing the Japanese is like she is talking about simple, childlike people. I don't think the men who fought World War II would think them simple and childlike or weak. This is a great story and a very good travelogue. But can you imagine how hot they had to be with all the clothes they wore in those days? And I do have to agree, that's the thing that continually strikes me about the clothing that Nellie will describe is how warm it must have been and how few opportunities there were for washing those clothes out if you didn't have very many the way she didn't. I would say, I I understand where you're coming from, Ken, but I would say my take on Nellie's comparison between the Chinese and Japanese was a really unfortunate set of tourist opportunities. In Canton, For one thing, she wasn't really prepared for how the culture was presented. And the second thing was, everything she saw had to do with death, execution, criminal punishment, lepers. So she was seeing the worst parts of that whole society, and they were kind of gruesome, I think we all have to admit, especially some of the things about how criminals were... um, punished. And if you notice the conversation too about how women were punished versus how men were punished. So Nellie is always looking at the women versus the men. Very natural. She's a woman. She's going to think about that kind of thing. Then she gets to Japan. So she's had the one contrast with seeing all these horrible places. And in Japan, I don't know if it's just a difference in the two areas she was in or the cultures of the different places, you know. But it's light, it's airy, it's clean. The shops aren't jammed in with everybody's homes, which is what she saw in Canton. And she's exposed to a lot of the women's culture. They see the geisha girls dancing. She's observing a lot of their clothing. And you notice she's not talking about the men much. She did just kind of go, the men seem pretty small. And not that strong, except for a sumo wrestler I saw. Done. And then it's all about the women. So this is clearly the contrast that captured her attention. 
I think also that it was really interesting when she was commenting very favorably on Japan as being a culture that adapts what they find useful from other cultures while retaining the things from their own culture that they find better. This really resonated with me. We've seen this, of course, after World War II, when we all learned more about each other's cultures and how well they innovated and took things on. And nobody at that time would have believed that they would be one of the leading car manufacturers, leading in, well, so many industries, computers and all these various things. And um, they do that while retaining their very unique culture, almost in a way that seems closed to to those of us in the United States who have been exposed to so many other cultures, but we generally started off with the European influence. It's still a mystery in a lot of ways. And I say that as somebody who would love to go to Japan, has read a lot of books by Europeans and Americans who have gone and lived there in current times, and has read... um, a mystery series that is set in Japan by somebody who's an American living there. And for heaven's sakes, we had two different Japanese interns living with us for quite a period of time. I think every culture does that to a degree, but they have perfected it. And this is one of the things she's commenting on. And I think that also is something where she's not contrasting it favorably with the Chinese, just not the way it is. So I understand what you're saying, but she's not really looking at the history of the Chinese and what they did. She's just looking at, whoa, here's what I see. It is right here, right now, how they're living. Just like she's not worried about the history of really any of the places she's gone. She's just looking at what she sees. So in my mind, it was, like I say, unfortunate contrast time. However... Now we're leaving all the wonderful tourist opportunities that she's had, and we're getting ready to blast across the Pacific and hit the U.S. running because she is trying to see how she can beat the record. And of course, so many obstacles are thrown in her way or fear of obstacles. Are you ready? Yeah, I know. Let's finish this thing up. I love Nellie Bly so much. I am getting ready, by the way, to read her Six Months in Mexico because I've enjoyed this so much that I'm thinking that might be a good one for us in the future sometime. But enough of that. Let's get back to the book. Let's dive in. Around the World in 72 Days by Nellie Bly Chapter 16 Across the Pacific. It was a bright, sunny morning when I left Yokohama. A number of new friends in launches escorted me to the Oceanic, and when we hoisted anchor, the steam launches blew loud blasts upon their whistles in farewell to me, and the band upon the Omaha played Home Sweet Home, Hail Columbia, the girl I left behind me in my honor and I waved my handkerchief so long after they were out of sight that my arms were sore for days. My feverish eagerness to be off again on my race around the world was strongly mingled with regret at leaving such charming friends and such a lovely land. Everything promised well for a pleasant and rapid voyage. 
Anticipating this, Chief Engineer Allen caused to be written over the engines and throughout the engine room this date and couplet. For Nellie Bly, we'll win or die, January 20th, 1890. It was their motto and was all very sweet to me. The runs were marvelous until the third day out, and then a storm came upon us. They tried to cheer me, saying it would only last that day, but the next day found it worse, and it continued, never abating a moment. Head winds, head sea, wild rolling, frightful pitching, until I fretfully waited for noon when I would slip off to the dining room to see the run, hoping that it would have gained a few miles on the day before, and always being disappointed. And they were all so good to me. Bless them for it. If possible, they suffered more over the prospect of my failure than I did. If I fail, I will never return to New York, I would say despondently. I would rather go in dead and successful than alive and behind time. Don't talk that way, child, Chief Allen would plead. I would do anything for you in my power. I have worked the engines as they were never worked before. I have sworn at this storm until I have no words left. I have even prayed. I haven't prayed before for years, but I prayed that this storm may pass over and that we may get you in on time. I know that I am not a sinner, I laughed hysterically. Day and night my plea has been, be merciful to me a sinner, and as the mercy has not been forthcoming, the natural conclusion is that I'm not a sinner. It's hopeless, it's hopeless. Don't think so, the purser would beg. Don't be so disheartened. Why, child, if by jumping overboard I could bring you happiness and success, I should do so in a moment. Never mind, little girl, you're all right. The jolly, happy-hearted captain would laugh. I've bet every cent I have in the bank that you'll get in before you are due. Just take my word for it. You'll be in New York at least three days ahead of time. Why do you try to cheat me? You know we are way behind time now, I urged, longing to be still farther cheated into fresh hope, to which the doctor would say dryly, Look here, Nellie Bly, if you don't stop talking so, I'll make you take some pills for your liver. You mean wretch, you know I can't help being blue. It's head sea and head winds and low runs, not liver. And then I would laugh, and so would they. And Mr. Allen, who had been pleading for me to smile just once, give them but one glimpse of my old jolly smile, would go away content. This is but a repetition of the way in which I was coaxed out of my unhappiness every day by those great-hearted, strong, tender men. At last a rumor became current that there was a Jonah on board the ship. It was thought over and talked over, and much to my dismay, I was told the sailors said monkeys were Jonahs. Monkeys brought bad weather to ships, and as long as the monkey was on board, we would have storms. Someone asked if I would consent to the monkey being thrown overboard. A little struggle between superstition and a feeling of justice for the monkey followed. Chief Allen, when I spoke to him on the subject, told me not to do it. He said the monkey had just gotten outside of a hundredweight of cement and had washed it down with a quart of lamp oil, and he, for one, did not want to interfere with the monkey's happiness and digestion. Just then, someone told me that ministers were Jonah's. They always brought bad weather to ships. We had two ministers on board.
So I said quietly, if the ministers were thrown overboard, I'd say nothing about the monkey. Thus the monkey's life was saved. Mr. Allen had a boy, Walter, who was very clever at tricks. One day Walter said he would show that he could lift a bottle merely by placing his open hand to the side of the bottle. He put everybody out of the cabin. As he said, if they remained in, it broke the influence. They watched intently through the open door as he rolled up his sleeve and rubbed his arm downward quite vigorously, as if trying to get all the blood in his hand. Catching the wrist with the other hand, as if to hold all the blood there, he placed his open hand to the side of the bottle, and much to the amazement of his audience, the bottle went up with his hand. When urged to tell how to do the wonderful trick, he said, It's all very easy. All you do is rub your arm. That's just for show. Then you lay hold of your wrist, just as if you wanted to keep all the blood in your hand. You keep one finger free. No one notices that. And you take the neck of the bottle between the hand and the finger, and the bottle goes up with the hand. See? One evening, when the ship was rolling frightfully, everybody was gathered in the dining hall. An Englishman urged Walter to do some tricks, but Walter did not want to be bothered then. So he said, Yes, sir, in a moment, sir, and went on putting the things upon the table. He had put down the mustard pot, the salt cellar, and various things, and was wiping a plate. As he went to put the plate down, the ship gave a great roll. The plate knocked against the mustard pot, and the mustard flew all over the Englishman, much to the horror of the others. Sitting up stiffly, the mustard dotting him from head to knees, he said sternly, Walter, what's this? That, sir, is the first trick, Walter replied softly, and he glided silently and swiftly off to the regions of the cook. But Walter was caught one day. A sailor told him that he could hide an egg on him so no one would be able to find it. Walter had his doubts, but he willingly gave the sailor a test. The egg was hidden, and a man called in to find it. He searched Walter all over without once coming upon the egg. The sailor suggested another trial to which Walter, now an interested and firm believer in the sailor's ability, gladly consented. The sailor opened Walter's shirt and placed the egg next to the skin in the region of his heart. "'carefully buttoning the shirt up afterwards. "'The man was called in. "'He went up to Walter and hit him a resounding smack "'where Sullivan hit Kilrain. "'He found the egg, and so did Walter. "'Japanese boys serve in the dining hall on the Oceanic, "'but the sailors are Chinese. "'They chant in a musical manner when hoisting the sails. "'It sounds as if they say, "'A-O-E-O, A-O-E-A-O.' The boys shake the tablecloths into a plate. They put a plate in the tablecloth, which two of them shake once or twice, and then slide the plate to the floor. The plate will be seen to have gathered all the crumbs. One Chinaman and one Japanese traveled first class coming over. The Chinaman was confined to his cabin with seasickness all the time, so we saw very little of him. The Japanese wore European dress and endeavored to ape the manners of the Europeans. Evidently, he thought it the custom to use toothpicks. It is with some people. After every meal, he used a toothpick so that the whole table might see, as if wishing to show he was civilized. Then, after a great amount of gorging, he always placed the toothpick, pen-like, behind his ear, where it stayed until the next meal. But even with low runs, our trip was bound to come to an end. 
One night it was announced that the next day we would be in San Francisco. I felt a feverish excitement, and many were the speculations as to whether there would be a snow blockade to hinder my trip across the continent. A hopefulness that had not known me for many days came back when in rushed the purser, his face snow-white, crying, My God, the bill of health was left behind in Yokohama. Well, well, what does that mean? I demanded, fearing some misfortune. I knew not what. It means, he said, dropping nerveless into a chair, that no one will be permitted to land until the next ship arrives from Japan. That will be two weeks. The thought of being held two weeks inside of San Francisco, inside of New York almost, and the goal for which I had been striving and powerless to move, was maddening. I would cut my throat, for I could not live and endure it, I said quietly, and that spurred him on to make another search, which resulted in finding the report safely lodged in the doctor's desk. Later came a scare about a smallpox case on board, but it proved to be only a rumor, and early in the morning the revenue officers came aboard bringing the newspapers. I read of the impassable snow blockade which for a week had put a stop to all railroad traffic, and my despair knew no bounds. While the Oceanic was waiting for the quarantine doctor, some men came out on a tug to take me ashore. There was no time for farewells. The monkey was taken on the tug with me, and my baggage, which had increased by gifts from friends, was thrown after me. Just as the tug steamed off, the quarantine doctor called to me that he had forgotten to examine my tongue, and I could not land until he did. I stuck it out, and he called out, All right! The others laugh, I wave farewell, and in another moment I was parted from my good friends on the Oceanic. Chapter 17 Across the Continent I only remember my trip across the continent as one maze of happy greetings, happy wishes, congratulating telegrams, fruit, flowers, loud cheers, wild hurrahs, rapid handshaking, and a beautiful car filled with fragrant flowers attached to a swift engine that was tearing like mad through flower-dotted valley and over snow-tipped mountain, on, on, on. It was glorious, a ride worthy a queen. They say no man or woman in America ever received ovations like those given me during my flying trip across the continent. The Americans turned out to do honor to an American girl who had been the first to make a record of a flying trip around the world, and I rejoiced with them that it was an American girl who had done it. It seemed as if my greatest success was the personal interest of everyone who greeted me. They were all so kind, anxious that I should finish the trip in time, as if their personal reputations were at stake. The special train had been waiting for my arrival in readiness to start the moment I boarded it. The deputy collector of the Port of San Francisco, the inspector of customs, the quarantine officer, and the superintendent of the O&O &O steamer sat up all the night preceding my arrival, so that there should be no delay in my transfer from the Oceanic to the special train." nor were they the only ones to wait for me. One poor little newspaper woman did not see bed that night, so anxious was she for an interview which she did not get. 
I was so entirely ignorant about what was to be done with me on my landing that I thought I was someone's guest until I was many miles away from San Francisco. Had I known in advance the special train was mine, every newspaper man and woman who cared to should have been my guest. My train consisted of one handsome sleeping car, the San Lorenzo, and the engine, the Queen, was one of the fastest on the Southern Pacific. What time do you want to reach New York, Miss Bly? Mr. Bissell, general passenger agent of the Atlantic and Pacific System, asked me. Not later than Saturday evening, I said, never thinking they could get me there in that time. Very well, we will put you there on time, he said quietly, and I rested satisfied that he would keep his word. It did not seem long after we left Oakland Mole until we reached the great San Joaquin Valley, a level green plain through which the railroad track ran for probably three hundred miles as straight as a sunbeam. The roadbed was so perfect that though we were traveling a mile a minute, the car was as easy as if it were traveling over a bed of velvet. At Merced, our second stop, I saw a great crowd of people dressed in their best Sunday clothes gathered about the station. I suppose they were having a picnic and made some such remark, to be told in reply that the people had come there to see me. Amazed at this information, I got up in answer to calls for me and went out on the back platform. A loud cheer, which almost frightened me to death, greeted my appearance, and the band began to play by Nellie's Blue Eyes. A large tray of fruit and candy and nuts, the tribute of a dear little newsboy, was passed to me for which I was more grateful than had it been the gift of a king. We started on again, and the three of us on the train had nothing to do but admire the beautiful country through which we were passing as swiftly as cloud along the sky, to read, or count telegraph poles, or pamper and pet the monkey. I felt little inclination to do anything but sit quietly and rest, bodily and mentally. There was nothing left for me to do now. I could hurry nothing. I could change nothing. I could only sit and wait until the train landed me at the end of my journey. I enjoyed the rapid motion of the train so much that I dreaded to think of the end. At Fresno, the next station, the town turned out to do me honor, and I was the happy recipient of exquisite fruits, wines, and flowers, all the product of Fresno County, California. The men who spoke to me were interested in my sunburnt nose, the delays I had experienced, the number of miles I had traveled. The women wanted to examine my one dress in which I had traveled around, the cloak and cap I had worn, were anxious to know what was in the bag, and all about the monkey. While we were doing some fine running the first day, I heard the whistle blow wildly, and then I felt the train strike something. Brakes were put on, and we went out to see what had occurred. It was hailing just then, and we saw two men coming up the track. The conductor came back to tell us that we had struck a hand car and pointed to a piece of twisted iron and a bit of splintered board, all that remained of it, lying alongside. When the men came up, one remarked with a mingled expression of wonder and disgust upon his face, Well, you are running like <sighs> Thank you. I am glad to hear it, I said, and then we all laughed. I inquired if they had been hurt. They assured me not and good humor being restored all around, we said good-bye. The engineer pulled the lever, and we were off again. 
At one station where we stopped, there was a large crowd, and when I appeared on the platform, one yell went up from them. There was one man on the outskirts of the crowd who shouted, Nellie Bly, I must get up close to you. The crowd evidently felt as much curiosity as I did about the man's object, for they made a way, and he came up to the platform. Nellie Bly, you must touch my hand, he said excitedly. Anything to please the man. I reached over and touched his hand, and then he shouted, Now you will be successful. I have in my hand the left hind foot of a rabbit. Well, I don't know anything about the left hind foot of a rabbit, but when I knew that my train had run safely across a bridge which was held in place only by jack screws and which fell the moment we were across, and when I heard that in another place the engine had just switched off from us when it lost a wheel, then I thought of the left hind foot of a rabbit, and I wondered if there was anything in it. One place where a large crowd greeted me, a man on the limits of it yelled, Did you ride on an elephant, Nellie? And when I said I had not, he dropped his head and went away. At another place the policemen fought to keep the crowd back. Everybody was wanting to shake hands with me. But at last one officer was shoved aside, and the other, seeing the fate of his comrade, turned to me, saying, I guess I'll give up and take a shake and while reaching for my hand was swept on with the crowd. I leaned over the platform and shook hands with both hands at every station, and when the train pulled out, crowds would run after, grabbing for my hands as long as they could. My arms ached for almost a month afterwards, but I did not mind the ache if by such little acts I could give pleasure to my own people, whom I was so glad to be among once more. "'Come out here and we'll elect you governor,' a Kansas man said." and I believe they would have done it if the splendid welcomes they gave me are any criterion. Telegrams addressed merely to Nellie Bly, Nellie Bly's train, came from all parts of the country, filled with words of cheer and praise at all hours of the day and night. I could not mention one place that was kinder than another. Over ten thousand people greeted me at Topeka, the mayor of Dodge City presented me, in behalf of the citizens, with resolutions of praise. I was very anxious to go to Kansas City, but we only went to the station outside of the limits in order to save thirty minutes. At Hutchinson a large crowd and the Ringgold Cornet Band greeted me, and at another place the man assured me that the band had been brought down, but they forgot to play. They merely shouted like the rest, forgetting in the excitement all about their music. I was up until four o'clock, talking first with the little newspaper girl from Kearney, Nebraska, who had traveled six hundred miles to meet and interview me, and later dictating an account of my trip to a stenographer, who was seasick from the motion of the train. I had probably slept two hours when the porter came to me, saying we would soon be in Chicago. I dressed myself leisurely and drank the last drop of coffee there was left on our train, for we had been liberally entertaining everybody who cared to travel any distance with us. I was surprised, on opening the door of my stateroom, to see the car quite filled with good-looking men. They were newspaper men, members of the Chicago Press Club, I found a moment later, who had come out to Joliet to meet me and to escort me to their city. Mr. Cornelius Gardiner, the vice-president of the club, in absence of the president, took charge of our little party. Before we were in, I had answered all their questions, and we joked about my sunburnt nose and discussed the merits of my one dress, the cleverness of the monkey, 
and I was feeling happy and at home and wishing I could stay all day in Chicago. Carriages were waiting to take us to the rooms of the press club. I went there in a coupe with Vice President Gardiner, who said, in a published narration of my visit afterwards, that he was strongly tempted to steal me, which clever idea so amused me that had the case been reversed, I know I should have acted on it, much to the confusion of a waiting public in New York. In the beautiful rooms of the press club I met the president, Stanley Waterloo, and a number of clever newspaper men. I had not been expected in Chicago until noon, and the club had arranged an informal reception for me, and when they were notified of my speedy trip and consequently earlier arrival, it was too late to notify the members. After a most delightfully informal reception, I was escorted to Kinsley's, where the club had a breakfast prepared. And then I learned that, owing to some misunderstanding, none of the men had anything to eat since the night before. After breakfast, the members of the press club, acting as my escort, took me to visit the Chicago Board of Trade. When we went in, the pandemonium which seems to reign during business hours was at its height. My escorts took me to the gallery, and just as we got there, a man raised his arm to yell something to the roaring crowd when he saw me, and yelled instead, "'There's Nellie Bly!' In one instant the crowd that had been yelling like mad became so silent a pin could have been heard fall to the floor. Every face, bright and eager, was turned up towards us, and instantly every hat came off, and then a burst of applause resounded through the immense hall. People can say what they please about Chicago, but I do not believe that anywhere else in the United States a woman can get a greeting which will equal that given by the Chicago Board of Trade. The applause was followed by a cheer after cheer and cries of speech, but I took off my little cap and shook my head at them, which only served to increase their cheers. Shortly afterwards, the press club escorted me to the Pennsylvania station, where I reluctantly bade them good-bye, unable to thank them heartily enough for the royal manner in which they had treated a little sunburnt stranger. Now I was on a regular train, which seemed to creep, so noticeable was the difference in the speed of traveling. Instead of a fine sleeping car at my disposal, I had but a stateroom, and my space was so limited that floral and fruit offerings had to be left behind. In Chicago, a cable which afforded me much pleasure reached me, having missed me at San Francisco. Mr. Verne wishes the following message to be handed to Nellie Bly the moment she touches American soil. Monsieur and Madame Jules Verne address their sincere felicitations to Miss Nellie Bly at the moment when that intrepid young lady sets foot on the soil of America. The train was rather poorly appointed, and it was necessary for us to get off for our meals. When we stopped at Logansport for dinner, I being the last in the car, was the last to get off. When I reached the platform, a young man, whom I never saw before or since, sprang upon the other platform, and waving his hat, shouted, Hurrah for Nellie Bly! The crowd clapped hands and cheered, and after making way for me to pass to the dining room, pressed forward and cheered again, crowding to the windows at last to watch me eat. When I sat down, several dishes were put before me, bearing the inscription, Success, Nellie Bly! It was after dark when we reached Columbus, where the depot was packed with men and women waiting for me. A delegation of railroad men waited upon me, and presented me with beautiful flowers and candy, as did a number of private people. I did not go to bed until after we had passed Pittsburgh, and only got up in the morning in time to greet the thousands of good people who welcomed me at Harrisburg, 
where the Harrisburg Wheelmen's Club sent a floral offering in remembrance of my being a wheelman. A number of Philadelphia newspaper men joined me there, and at Lancaster I received an enthusiastic reception. Almost before I knew it I was at Philadelphia, and all too soon to please me, for my trip was so pleasant, and I dreaded the finish of it. A number of newspaper men and a few friends joined me at Philadelphia to escort me to New York. Speech-making was the order from Philadelphia on to Jersey City. I was told when we were almost home to jump to the platform the moment the train stopped at Jersey City, for that made my time around the world. The station was packed with thousands of people, and the moment I landed on the platform, one yell went up from them, and the cannons at the battery in Fort Greene boomed out the news of my arrival. I took off my cap and wanted to yell with the crowd— not because I had gone around the world in seventy-two days, but because I was home again. Chapter 18 The Record I started from Hoboken on my trip around the world November 14, 1889. I finished it in Jersey January 25, 1890. The itinerary of my trip, published the morning I started, and the itinerary as I found it, were as follows. November 14th. Leave New York by Augusta, Victoria, 9.30 a.m. November 21st. Due Southampton. London by rail in three hours. November 22nd. Leave Victoria Station, London, 8 p.m. on India Mail. November 23rd. Calais, Paris, and Turin. November 24th, Brindisi at 10.14 p.m. November 25th, leave Brindisi, Steamship Cathay, 9 a.m. November 27th, Ismailia. December 3rd, Aden. December 10th, Colombo, Ceylon. December 16th, Penang. December 18th, Singapore. December 25th, Hong Kong. December 28th, Leave Hong Kong for Yokohama, Japan. January 7th, leave Yokohama via Pacific Mail Steamship. January 22nd, due San Francisco. January 27th, due New York. November 14th to January 27th, 75 days. The itinerary as I found it. November 14th, left New York via Augusta, Victoria. November 22nd, 2.30 a.m., arrived Southampton, London. November 22nd, 10 o'clock a.m., left London, Charing Cross Station. November 23rd, 1.30 a.m., left Calais. November 25th, 1.30 a.m., arrived Brindisi. 3 o'clock a.m., left Brindisi, Steamship Victoria. November 27th, 3.30 p.m., Arrived Port Said. November 28th, 11 o'clock a.m. Arrived Ismailia. 9 o'clock p.m. Suez. December 3rd, 11 o'clock. Arrived Aden. December 8th, 11 o'clock a.m. Arrived Colombo, Ceylon. December 16th, 7 o'clock a.m. Arrived Penang. December 18th, 5 o'clock a.m. Arrived Singapore. December 25th, 7 o'clock a.m., arrived Hong Kong. December 28th, 2.30 p.m., 
left Hong Kong for Yokohama. January 7th, 10.55 a.m., left Yokohama via Occidental and Oriental steamship. January 21st, 8 o'clock a.m., arrived San Francisco. January 23rd, 7.05 a.m., arrived Chicago. January 25th, 3.51 p.m., arrived New York. November 14th to January 25th, 72 days. The names of the steamers and the different routes by which I traveled were the Augusta Victoria of the Hamburg American Steamship Line, the London and Southwestern Railway, the Southeastern Railway, the India Mail, the Victoria, and the Oriental of the Peninsular and Oriental Steamship Line, the Oceanic of the Occidental and Oriental Steamship Line, the Southern Pacific Railway, the Atlantic and Pacific Railway, the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railway, and the Pennsylvania Railway. I spent 56 days, 12 hours, and 41 minutes in actual travel, and lost by delay 15 days, 17 hours, and 30 minutes. The second table shows the miles traveled, hours spent in traveling, and hours delayed. The hours delayed, marked by a star, shows the time spent in diverging from my original line of travel to visit Monsieur and Madame Jules Verne at Amiens. I traveled 179 and a half miles out of my way to visit the great novelist, which is not considered in my number of miles traveled, nor do I count the miles traveled at the ports where I was detained, which taken together would not fall short of 1,500 miles. Hoboken to Southampton 3,041 miles, 184 hours, 50 minutes traveling, 50 minutes delayed. To London, 90 miles, 2 hours, 15 minutes traveling, 14 hours, 25 minutes delayed, asterisk. To Brindisi, 1,450 miles, 53 hours, 30 minutes traveling, one hour, thirty minute delayed. To Port Said, 930 miles, 62 hours, 30 minutes traveling, three hours, 30 minutes delayed. To Aden, 1,394 miles, 110 hours traveling, six hours delayed. To Colombo, 2,093 miles, 138 hours traveling, 98 hours, 5 minutes delayed. To Penang, 1,278 miles, 89 hours, 55 minutes traveling, 7 hours delayed. To Singapore, 381 miles, 39 hours traveling, 11 hours delayed. To Hong Kong, 1,437 miles, 111 hours traveling, 127 hours, 20 minutes delayed. To Yokohama, 1,597 miles, 131 hours, 40 minutes traveling, 104 hours, 55 minutes delayed. To San Francisco, 4,525 miles, 333 hours, 5 minutes traveling. To Chicago, 2,573 miles, 71 hours, 5 minutes, 2 hours, 55 minutes delayed. To Jersey City, 
951 miles, 29 hours, 51 minutes traveling. Total, 21,740 miles, 1,356 hours, 41 minutes traveling, 377 hours, 30 minutes delayed. Total time occupied in tour, 1,734 hours and 11 minutes, being 72 days, 6 hours and 11 minutes. Average rate of speed per hour, exclusive of stops, 22.47 miles. Average rate of speed, including stops, 28.71 miles per hour. Up to date, my trip is the fastest on record between San Francisco and Chicago. One run was 250 miles in 250 minutes, and that counting the minutes lost stopping at half a dozen different towns. Another run was 59 miles in 50 minutes. Between Topeka and Kansas City, we ran 13 miles in 11 minutes. Later, we ran a mile in 53 seconds, and again 26 miles in 23 minutes. We made 2,566 miles in 69 hours, which is the fastest time, I am informed, that has been made for this distance. Although the Santa Fe route is over 500 miles longer than the Union Pacific, we beat the time of the fastest mail to Chicago by 10 hours. If we had had the same distance to travel, we would have beaten it by 24 hours. The Santa Fe had only one day to prepare for my trip, and yet everything was perfect. They tell me when the Palmer Jarrett across the continent trip was made, they had been preparing for it for six months in advance, and when the start was made, a flagman was posted at every switch and crossing between New York and San Francisco, and yet, without any preparations, my train traveled 500 miles farther and beat their time by 24 hours. It is not possible to quote my fares and expenses as a criterion for prospective tourists, as I was traveling for a newspaper, and what it cost is their secret. Not counting the extra train, if first-class tickets had been bought from New York to New York, it would only have cost $805. By using economy, outside expenses should not exceed $300. On my tour, I traversed the following waters. North River, New York Bay, Atlantic Ocean, English Channel, Adriatic Sea, Ionian Sea, Mediterranean Sea, Suez Canal, Gulf of Suez, Red Sea, Straits of Bab el-Mandeb, Gulf of Aden, Arabian Sea, Indian Ocean, Straits of Malacca, China Sea, Pacific Ocean, San Francisco Bay. I visited or passed through the following countries, England, France, Italy, Egypt, Japan, the United States, and the following British possessions, Aden, Arabia, Colombo, Isle of Ceylon, Penang, Prince of Wales Island, Singapore, Malay Peninsula, and the island of Hong Kong. L'Envoi To so many people this wide world over am I indebted for kindnesses that I cannot, in a little book like this, thank them all individually. They form a chain around the earth. To each and all of you, men, women, and children, in my land and in the lands I visited, I am most truly grateful. Every kind act and thought, if but an unuttered wish, a cheer, a tiny flower, 
is embedded in my memory as one of the pleasant things of my novel tour. From you and from all those who read the chronicle of my trip, I beg indulgence. These pages have been written in the spare moments snatched from the exactions of a busy life. <laughs>